Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? Great. Um, so this might be news to a lot of people, but I have recently started an intensive study of Old English. And this is the language Why? that is the uh, direct ancestor of, well, Middle English and then Modern English. And a Why lot have of, you done this, Derek? What? Why have you done this? Oh, do I need a reason why? I mean, I'm just curious. Like, you don't need a reason why. It's just, I mean, why Old English? Why are you studying this, of all things? Well, like, you you picked up a study of Reformed Egypt. What was it? Old Egyptian, New mm-hmm. Egyptian, something like that. Yeah. You're studying Greek still as well because you're trying to be able to right. read you know, the Bible without uh, translation aids. And your Greek is already pretty good, mm-hmm. and now it's Old English. So what, well, like, what purpose of- does this have? Uh, there's some some documents that I would like to read. I would also like to study the sort of the history of English as well and, and know where our words came. But also there are a lot of, um, I would like to look at early Christian, uh, well, exactly medieval Christian reception of the Bible. Like how was it translated? How was it paraphrased? How was it preached? And we've got homilies from this period. We've got a wealth of of Old English literature. Now, I need to clarify, a lot of people, they hear Old English and they think Shakespeare. Shakespeare is early uh-huh. modern English. Uh, mm-hmm. Old English, also called Anglo-Saxon, is a an early Germanic language that is almost unrecognizable to modern English speakers. Uh, we've had a lot of shift that has happened over the course of the history of English. Shift happens. Uh, the first one was the uh, Norman invasion, which brought a lot of French to the, uh, uh, so you have a lot of Romance languages to the indigenous uh, Germanic. By the way, the Anglo-Saxons weren't even indigenous to England. They came from the continent. Before that, it was uh, populated by Celtic peoples. So you've got all that, and then there's some Viking words that came in, and then in the end of the Middle English period, you have what's called the Great vowel shift so all of the sort of vowels for some weird reason rotated with one another and and got pronounced differently than they had been and uh, i like to call this a big vowel movement i saw that one coming (laughs) but it is funny it is moderately amusing (laughs) oh well so and that uh Great English vowel shift is sort of what led to early modern English, and that's where we get Shakespeare and the King James Version, and then that's where we get modern English. Um, But there's certain authors I want to read, most prominently Alfric, and we'll talk about uh, Alfric of Ensham a little bit today. I don't know how much I'm going to ramble on about him. But uh, so that's kind of where I'm going with it. All right. Got you. You said we'll talk about... So not... Okay, so we're actually going to be addressing some of this today. Right. Like your mm-hmm. studies of the old English will actually bear some fruit in today's discussion. I am looking forward to that. That'll be, I'm yeah. very interested to see how you uh, bring that in. But uh, yeah, before we go ahead and uh, begin our discussion for today, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent and interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. 
and I don't know if you guys have seen this as well, but Dialogue just uh, launched its own uh, online course channel for uh, for their for their YouTube page. So Dialogue is actually going to be doing a, a series of online courses. It looks like it's beginning with uh, Taylor Petrie's course on uh, the Old Testament. I think it'll be about ten lectures or so. So that is exciting. It'll be very interesting to see what direction. Uh, we'll go, what kind of instructors we'll get in there. It's, it's already been great having the Dialogue Sunday School to turn to every Sunday, uh, pretty much since the pandemic started. But uh, this series is going to be something different. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it'll be interesting to see what direction that goes. But anyway, uh, we are going to be in just Moses chapter 7 today. Uh, this is more of the story of Enoch. We see more of his communication with God. We learn more about the... Uh, uh, what do you call it? The the, the city of Enoch, the mm-hmm. establishing of Zion. Uh, we learn a little bit about uh, how that community was established. Uh, we learn a little bit more about God's feelings about his creation and uh, probably more. Like it's, uh, it's a nice long chapter. There's plenty of material that is worth uh, talking about. But I think most people, when they uh, do a study of Moses chapter 7, usually focus on, on the Zion community among a couple of other things, uh, namely uh, God displaying emotion, a God who weeps. There's actually a whole mm-hmm, book on this mm-hmm. by the Givens called yeah. God Who Weeps. So uh, that is that is probably something worth considering too. Uh, is there anything else, uh, Derek, that you've noticed in this chapter that might be that uh, people have been discussing or that uh, maybe has uh, stood out this time around before we go ahead and jump into our own insights? Yeah, well... I, I'm going to look forward to talking about the, the Zion people and what nature that is, because that has some significant applicability to how uh, we do our ecclesiology, that is, our doctrine of the church. How do we structure our church? How do we characterize the church? Uh, especially verse 18, and the Lord called his people Zion because they were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness, and there was no poor among them. So you have mm-hmm. the presence of justice here. But before we even get into the text, I have a bunch of like inter- introductory uh, sort of I'm just going to I'm just going to sort of freely flow through some of this introductory material. I didn't plan it out, <laughs> unfortunately. OK, so introductory material is always great. So I'm going to first take a detour to talk about uh, one overarching paradoxical tension that we have in the Restoration Church is this tense. tension between restoration and ongoing revelation. So we have two narratives that are in paradox with one another. One is that, oh, we're just restoring something exactly the way it was to some ancient hypothetical ideal, right? We're just restoring that. Then there's this idea of that we've got progressive revelation and dispensations that are very different from one another and our revelation progresses line upon line and we know things that we didn't know before and and so those those need to be held in, in tension with one another and it reminds me a lot of some of the strategic uh, prophetic strategies that we see throughout the scriptures and i had a uh, I had a, a I have a friend who's a rabbi who has told me the difference between academics and clergy. The job of academics is to take something old and make it sound new so you can publish because of course there isn't anything actually new under the sun. But you're supposed to take something new and uh, take something old and make it sound new. Find some new application or new interpretation or some new spin on it or some new 
angle. Now, the job of clergy, the pastoral duty, the pastoral and prophetic duty of clergy leading a people is to take something new and make it sound old. That is, graft it onto the continuity that the people will understand and make it accessible based on what people already know. Because how do you get people to change is, oh, well, you just kind of say, well, nope, that's how it's always supposed to have been, right? And Joseph was really good at that, uh, grafting the new onto the old and making it sound old. And that's most of what, what he did in the Restoration. So the surface narrative is that he's restoring all this stuff, but what he's restoring really is the covenant relationship. He's not literally restoring things exactly the way uh, they were. And this reminds me of something I read uh, on San, uh, Hannah Syriac's, one of her posts recently. She really reminded people that when we look at the peoples of the Hebrew Bible, that they weren't Latter-day Saints. And I thought to myself, well, of course, it's the word Latter-day is in Latter-day Saints. Of course they weren't Latter-day Saints, but she is wise enough to, to remember that people need to be reminded of that. Like, I don't think of that too much because I don't think of them as proto-Latter-day Saints. But so many people look at the figures in the Hebrew Bible, even all the way back to Abraham and Adam and Moses, and say, well, they were they were Mormons, right? They had... They had garments, and they had the word of wisdom, and they mm-hmm. did this way, and they had the same priesthood structure, and they had all this other stuff. And, and no, they weren't. They weren't Latter-day Saints. They weren't even Christian. And I think there, mm-hmm. there's this popular imagination that retroactively makes them all uh, Christians or, or, or Latter-day Saints, and, and that leads to a lot of um, misconceptions. There's also this imagination that retroactively makes them all white people, and they were not white people. Right. Right. The, uh, yeah, no white people. No white people back then. I guess I would count the Romans and the Greeks as white people, but that's about the only white people you have in the Bible. So, mm-hmm. um, so let me, let me just go back in and, and, and this reminds me a lot of Alfred that we were talking about who wrote, uh, a thousand years ago. Some of his writings are in Latin and some of his writings are in Old English. And he was asked by one of his um, noblemen. Oh, he I forgot to say, he was a monk. He was an abbot. He was a leader at a monastery. He uh, was very much skilled in, in Latin and in, uh, um, in monastic living. They followed the, the Benedictine rule of life. And um, he was asked by someone to translate the book of Genesis from Latin into English. Now, there's a problem with that. Uh, as far as I know, this is the first translation of the scriptures into English. And it hadn't been done before. And Alfred was really, really hesitant to translate Genesis. He eventually did. And so I've, I've started to read some of his translation of Genesis. But he wrote a preface to Genesis in English where he explained his hesitation and his fears of what would happen if the common people who weren't very learned, uh, just had access to the scriptures in their own language. And so I don't even have this in front of me, but so I'm going from memory. But here's one of the things Alfred says. Alfred says, look, there's a lot of bad examples in 
the Hebrew scriptures. There's a lot of stuff that isn't the way we do it now. And if people just read it, they might get the wrong idea. And that is really true. Uh, and his okay. Alfred's first example, you won't you won't believe this. His first example, he says, "Well, if we translate Genesis into English, then some unlearned some unlearned person will come along and restore polygamy." <laughs> and uh, yeah, well. that's <laughs> well, that has happened multiple times in the history of Christianity, not just in our tradition, but the Oneida mm-hmm. community in New York. Um, there's several groups of Anabaptists in the 16, uh, 16th century that, like, whoops, went back to the Bible and, like, oh, now we're, and they restored polygamy as well. And he's like, yeah, we can't let people read this without training. Um, so, or else they'll restore polygamy. Another thing he said is that, well, if we just give people the Bible in English, then the unlearned people will take everything literally. And there's stuff that's not supposed to be taken literally, but if you're unlearned, you're just going to look at everything and take it straightforwardly, and you're going to make it uh, literal. And and some of this stuff isn't meant to be taken literally, especially the creation account, uh, Alfred says. And so I think that is a tendency. Now, Alfred was prophetic in the sense that, yeah, he's right. There's a lot of Latter-day Saints that are going to just look at the text really simplistically and make it historical and make it literal and make it like this is exactly what Noah did and exactly what Adam did and exactly what Enoch mm-hmm. did. And uh, my perspective as a, as a scholar of the scriptures and as a historian and uh, looking at several independent uh, disciplines of thought, including anthropology, is that Adam and Noah eh, and Enoch were not historical individuals. They're characters in this faith document, but they didn't exist. Uh, so, and that, that might be troubling to some people, but I don't think it should be troubling because it's a genre issue as well. Um, um, which which goes back to making sure that you read the text, uh, not, um, not, um, not so, I, I don't want to say unlearnedly, but anyway... So that's kind of where I want to go. And also, Alfred talks about, so he translated some um, of the lives of the saints from Latin into English. And it's very interesting what he does when he talks about eunuchs. And there wasn't uh, an Anglo Saxon concept for eunuch, apparently. And they didn't, uh, so, so just wrestling with that. And I'm reading a book also on the concept of a third gender in Alfred's Lives of the Saints because he looks at these things and he looks at celibacy. He looks at, um, now of course he was a celibate monk and many of the lives of the saints that he celebrated were, were, were celibate also. But he also looks at this idea of that somehow we can transcend male and female and become more like uh, the image of God which is beyond male and female, and this under this concept now called metagender, and there's there's a uh, saints that were uh, what we now would call crossdressers. There's women saints who dressed up as men, and flowed through the world that way. And so, just seeing how how this all uh, flows together is something that I haven't fully studied yet, but I'm looking forward to studying. So, any any. Th- Thoughts so far about what I've said? 
Oh gosh. Um, nah, that, that, there was a lot in there, Derek. Um, I know I had a thought a little bit, a little while ago, um, mm-hmm. but it must not be that important because I can't recall it. If it does come back, I will, I'll, I'll go ahead and interject, but no, this is a lot of new information to me. I'm just enjoying the learning. Oh, so. good. Um, and then I'm going to get into something that, that I don't think should be challenging. I remember the, the problem is I need to have a little bit more empathy for some of these questions I wrestled with uh, over, over 20, 30 years ago around historical critical work with the scriptures. But then I had a professor say to me, so at first I thought like, oh no, if we do source criticism of the, of the synoptic gospels, that means that it might not be inspired, like because they're just looking up stuff and, and compiling stuff and stitching stuff together and it might not be like God's word. And then I had a professor said to me, Derek, look at the prologue to Luke, Luke 1, 1 through 4. Luke says he uses mm-hmm. sources. Right, he says right. he depends on other people. He says he was not an eyewitness, so he was dependent on other people's sources. Um, it could be that Mary um, and other women were sources of, of this. And he also says that there were pre-existing written records, and he's responding to those. And so I'm like, oh, if he, if that's basically the prologue to Luke and the ending of John are the only times where the gospel writers explicitly talk about what they're doing and why. And in both cases, I think I think I see where you're going with this. It, like, is this going to help us? Is this going to inform how we read uh, this chapter or this book of Moses? Uh, is this right, going to inform right, or perhaps right, acknowledge exactly. the sources that exactly? Okay. And so, I think that looking at the um, the compositional history of the text and seeing what sources were were involved, um, doing source criticism of the Book of Mormon is something that people are afraid to do. Um, same thing with the book of Moses and the book of Abraham, um, looking at what influences were there, and especially uh, looking at these texts as 19th century literature, because no matter what your um, understanding is of the ultimate origins, the English book of Mormon, the English book of Moses, the English book of Abraham are given in 19th century English to a 19th century audience, and you need to loop that context in if you're going to understand what this would have been saying. How was it translated for that audience? You have to know how that audience used um, used English. And so I think that is, mm-hmm. uh, for me, situating this Enoch material and the in the ancient world makes no sense, but situating it in the 19th century makes everything make sense. And I would just hope to to say, well, people shouldn't be afraid of this. Like, we should seek truth wherever it is. And whatever happens, we're, we're going to be able to um, to flow with it. And, and we shouldn't be afraid of that. I, but I, I kind of forget to do that because I move in the scholarly world where questions like this aren't even a controversy. It's just the way we do things. <laughs> in other words, this isn't something that comes up at church. And uh, therefore, it's just not a foreign concept to you that perhaps a study or rather an acknowledgement that Joseph Smith had other sources in Mm -hmm. the study or in the creation Mm -hmm. of these texts, that that's just not weird to you. That's not a foreign thing to you. That's not controversial to you. Right. And so uh, it should give us some sympathy for the human fingerprints that are on the scriptures and it should help Mm -hmm. us um, interpret them better. Cause my, my view is we want this, this is the, the word of God and to interpret it correctly, 
we need to know how the language is being used. And to do that, we need to know, is this a 19th century text? And so that's kind of where I'm flowing is it's all about like absolutely interpreting the word of God responsibly and correctly in its context. You have to, so mm-hmm. you kind of have to do these things or to get the, the meaning of the text right. And so I want to talk right. a little bit about the compositional history of the Joseph Smith translation, which um, we, the first part has been canonized in our tradition as the book of Moses. And so I'm drawing upon this article by Colby Townsend called, uh, it is called um, Translation as Expansion, the Method of Joseph Smith's Revision of Genesis in Moses 1 and 7. So through some inspired creative process, God used the human instrument of Joseph Smith to kaleidoscopically uh, put together this this text. And one of the, of course, the big sources here is the King James Bible, not just um, the Hebrew Scriptures, but also the New Testament. The book of Moses in many places is directly dependent on the King James New Testament. Um, so putting these things in the mouth of Enoch makes no sense if you take Enoch as this... this um, prehistoric figure, but if you take it as, uh, well, this is uh, the revival literature of the 19th century where we're, we're recombining and artfully and in, in an inspired manner, stitching together texts from the New Testament and putting them figuratively in the mouth of the character of Enoch, then it all makes sense, right? And you can see what the impact would have been on the people of the day. And uh, so this kind of gets back to something that connects with what I learned from Alfred, right? Is you kind of have to be responsible with the, the text. Um, and yes, the surface narrative in our tradition is that Joseph restored lost texts and he restored lost priesthoods and he restored lost ordinances and lost teachings. But that's the surface narrative. We have to figure out, well, this is the way it's framed, but Joseph, in many cases, was doing something really, really new and then making sense of it in terms of the old. And I think that's um, what's been going on here. I'm not going to go through all of uh, Colby Townsend's work on Moses chapter 7, but I'm going to draw uh, directly upon upon it uh and just to talk about some of these details. So let's start out with um, in Moses 7, 1. We've got the phrase, many have believed and became the sons of God. And this echoes John 1, 12, right? Um, very famous, okay? And then we've got um, language from Revelation 18 and Hebrews 10 here. Um, about the wrath, and then we've got apocalyptic language being poured out. Uh, and then Moses 7.10 uh, is dependent upon Malachi 4.6, where Enoch is commanded to tell people to, quote, repent lest I shall come and smite them with a curse and they die. And then we've got um, an echo of the final command in the Gospel of Matthew, where you are explicitly uh, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son, and then you've got the, uh, uh, and then you've got um, 
And that was verse 11, right? Right, right. Okay. And then, yeah, let's look at verse 11 here. Um, and then you've got a mention of the Holy Ghost. The full of grace and truth, of course, comes from John. This beareth record of the Father and the Son. That comes from 1 John 5, 7. Um, even this of one heart and one mind, this has a really powerful punch when you hear it in the mouth of Enoch. But it's actually quoting Acts 4, verse 32. And Colby Townsend argues that uh, when you look at the... Uh, that the church was of one heart and one soul, according to the King James of Acts. That uh, 18th and 19th century oral preachers would have this oral substitution where they would preach and they would swap out, and instead of saying soul, they would say mind. And so that's how you've got not just a quotation of the King James here, but you've got a quotation of a 19th century um, common substitution where they would preach one heart and one mind as they made it applicable to the way we speak in the 19th century. And so we've got dependences on Isaiah 6, and we've got more dependence on John 1.18 with Enoch being in the bosom of the Father. The Son of Man is anachronistic. That is something um, comes from later usage in the Bible. We've got like there's there's many many I'm not even going to go through all of them because people if they're just listening probably can't even keep track of all these but you can look at um Colby's article and he doesn't even do an exhaustive treatment my point is that what Joseph did here was really profound he was inspired to stitch together these things and in the process, he's distilling so much of the most moving and memorable phrases throughout um, the Hebrew Bible and throughout the New Testament. And the final product is one that packs a powerful punch. In fact, it even, to me, packs more of a powerful punch than what we've got in the Bible. Because we don't have all of this all put together in this particular way. And so we see Joseph's right. fingerprints all over this. And I don't see this in any way contrary to inspiration. I think that, because here's the other thing. All of our scriptures did this. All of our scriptures are <laughs> remixes of previous things. They are adaptions. <laughs> they're, they're expansions. They're um, taking things out of context. You know, the, the New Testament many times takes the Hebrew Bible out of context. But it does so in an inspired way that makes meaning that has authority to the community that is constructing that meaning. So where am I going with all this is when we get to these things in the text of Moses chapter 7, it may make sense to interpret them in the light of the 19th century. For example, when it talks about Enoch being of one heart and one mind, uh, the people, well, we have to realize that in the um, Genesis narrative, the divisions of the peoples in uh uh, at, at the Tower of Babel hadn't happened yet, right? You don't have right. the, this... Um, uh, what, is the, what is the word for when you... Um, sort of separations of peoples yet, right? And so in its... This segregation. It, yeah, segregation, that's the word, I guess. So it doesn't make any sense in the context of Enix, but it does make sense in the context of the diversity of 19th century America of why you would need to unite 
uh, diverse peoples together and why you would need to repent and how you have all this explicit Christian language that if you try to make it literal is very anachronistic, but it's very powerful if you realize yet that this is a, um, a revival preacher in the 19th century Second Great, Great Awakening. And, um, and just, I know I'm opening up more questions than answers, but I just wondered what you, what you thought about this so far. Well, first of all, the best theologians help us have the right questions. They don't just answer questions, but they leave us with better questions than the ones we had. So mm. I don't think that's a problem at all. I think that's a, a great thing that you're doing. And I have had that question in particular, Derek, about uh, how we read this text in the context of a 19th century Joseph Smith, especially, uh, you know, verses 8 and 22, which mm -hmm. I just got, mm -hmm. which I got asked about a bunch this week. And, uh, you know, you, you said... Um, that Moses 7 packs a pretty powerful punch. And I, I, I fully agree with you. Mm -hmm. I also lament a bit that people, and, you know, I'll throw myself in this category because I was, you know, and, and to an extent I'm still one of these people that can struggle to read sacred texts such as this if I'm not able to reconcile the language mm -hmm. that I find in verses 8 and 22. We'll get to that in just a second, but I just really appreciate you bringing uh, this kind of, I don't know if pseudepigraphal is the right word. I think I heard you use that once and mm -hmm. explained it briefly, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, I I'm glad that you're bringing in, you know, these elements into the conversation about how this book came to be and also how, the 19th century context of Joseph Smith has informed his, you know, putting of these things onto paper, his coagulation of all this material that is now present in Moses 7 in a very beautiful way, in a way that, you know, gives us more than what we are given in the book of Genesis. Like we're, we're not given most of this in the book of Genesis. This is a footnote in the book of Genesis. And now we right. have all of this, uh, thanks to Joseph Smith's efforts, and not and just because he has uh, compiled this from a variety of resources and inspiration, doesn't make it any less inspired. It just frames how we are to uh, read this material, mm -hmm. among among other things. But yeah, all this to say, I'm glad that you have brought this to our attention, so we can read this, yeah. and also so that and, we can be um, more informed. It goes back to something Alfred said: is if people don't have the tools, they're going to think. If we don't empower people, they're going to just take it literally and they're going to think that that's the best that we can do with the text and they're going to come away with some misconceptions um and they're going to think that the literal sense of the text is the the correct one or the orthodox one and you may have really distorted the sense and this isn't me speaking as like a post-enlightenment uh, academic liberal Alfred said this. He is safely moved from any sense of liberalism. He is safely removed from any bias of the Enlightenment. I mean, Augustine said some of the same things about interpreting Genesis, Genesis literally as well. This isn't like a, oops, we discovered evolution and now we have to backpedal and, and fake. No, I think the, the drive to interpret these texts literally and woodenly and fundamentalistically is a product of of really modernism that that needs to have solid answers and needs to have these questions and 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 doesn't have tools for 
taking them any other way. And I think that's the the power of the restoration. That's the power of likening the scriptures unto yourselves. That's the power of um, taking the uh, taking the texts in a spiritual manner is it allows you other strategies for reading the text. And I think other strategies for reading the text is something we're going to have to do when we look at the issue of black and blackness in Moses chapter 7. But before we get there, I just wanted to name one other thing. If you look at Joseph Smith's um, history of the church or the history of the church that has come down to us under his name, volume 1, chapter 12 is about the lost books of ancient scripture. And we look at Colby Townsend's work as well. And um, in we also have to look. If you look at the heading of Moses chapter 7, it was revealed in December of 1830. What was going on in December of 1830? Well, the saints were in New York still. They had less than 100 people. They um, There's a lot of fervor about the Book of Mormon, a lot of excitement about lost scriptures, the... For, the um, uh, First Enoch, which I don't know if we talked about last week, um, which is an authentic document from the ancient world, uh, was translated to English shortly before that. Uh, there was a lot of buzz about lost scriptures and, and restoring, and you had the Campbellites trying to get back to a uh, New Testament first century church and trying to restore that. And so this is the buzz that you've got. And so we've got... Um, here we are in chapter 12 of volume 1 of the History of the Church. And here's what it says. In the forepart of November, Orson Pratt, a young man, 19 years of age, who had been baptized at the first preaching of his brother, Parley P. Pratt, September 19th, his birthday, about six weeks previous, in Canaan, New York, came to inquire of the Lord what his duty was and received the following answer. And this revelation to Orson Pratt um, is now DNC 34. So basically what we've got is November, the Pratts come along and are excited about these things, excited about the restoration. They come from Canaan, New York, that, that may or may not be significant. And then um, we get this answer. And then later in December, we get the Enoch material, and, which is given here in this same chapter in the history of the church. Um, after a few other revelations, we get uh, this comment in the history of the church. It says, uh, Much conjecture and conversation frequently occurred among the saints concerning the books mentioned, that is, the Book of Mormon, and referred to... Uh, oh, no, it's not the Book of Mormon. Much conjecture and conversation frequently occurred among the saints concerning the books mentioned and referred to in various places in the Old and New Testaments, which were now nowhere to be found. The common remark was, they are lost books. But it seems the apostolic church had some of these writings, as Jude mentions or quotes the prophecy of Enoch, the seventh from Adam, to the joy of the little flock, which in all from Colesville to Canandaigua, New York, numbered about 70 members, did the Lord reveal the following doings, of olden times from the prophecy of Enoch. And then we've got an extract here from uh, Moses 7. So you've got all of this uh, excitement about lost scriptures. Uh, Jude actually quotes the authentic first Enoch document. By authentic first Enoch, I mean it, I don't mean it was written by Enoch, but I mean it's an actual document from the ancient world um, that scholars have translated by this point. 
And so um, you've got this talking about Canaan, which makes no sense in the context of Moses 7, because Enoch was before, Canaan was the grandson of Noah, literally, and Canaan didn't exist yet. The Canaan, the land didn't exist yet. Canaan, the people didn't exist yet. Canaan, the person didn't exist yet. So all this talk about Canaan in verse 7 cannot be taken literally, right? I don't think we can take any of this literally. We've got these symbols here, um, and especially we've got these uh, these sort of dreamlike uh, uh, stitching together of of a variety of sources, including uh, things from the New Testament, including perhaps even the the word Canaan came from uh, from the Pratt brothers just just arrived from Canaan, New York. I don't know, but I have a lot of questions as to what exactly happened, and who knows. Um, Joseph himself might have not not have known how he came up with this text. I think that's how inspiration works. Sometimes I get ideas, yeah. and I'm like, I have no idea where that came from. Like an idea for and you'll a straight poem up forget or the a ideas song, that you've had. Right? I don't know how I did it. You've, you, <laughs> Joseph really didn't say how he did it, so we don't know. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so let's get into some questions we have, and I think the point here is to ask good questions of the text, like, what did what were other preachers of the time uh, saying about the curse of Cain or the curse of Canaan uh, or the curse of Ham? What um, what was going on there? And uh, um, is it better? What are we going to do with this text? So, yeah, what are your thoughts on these things? Yeah. Um, so like I was saying earlier, I had a lot of, uh, I had a few people come to me with questions about 8 and 22 and considering what's in Moses chapter seven. I mean, you've already gone over a brilliant overview of how this has come about, the sources that were uh, consulted, um, you know, just the nature of pseudepigraphal literature in general. Like we, we have a lot of, mm-hmm. we have a lot of richness in this text and uh, that can all be thwarted by, you know, some other questions we have about this text. Like I said, verse eight and Verse 22 are big ones. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how anybody, at least among black folk, can read these verses and not have all the question marks, all the interrobangs, uh, you know, for lack of a better word. There there are readings that folks have used to, to help deal with this. Mm-hmm. For example, one that I frequently heard is that blackness in these verses isn't explicitly racialized or ascribed directly to skin color. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least in the Bible, there's absolutely no ascriptions of white or black to contemporary notions of racial categories. Mm-hmm. And Joseph Smith mm-hmm. could just be borrowing the black and white language used in the Bible for the book of Moses. Like that is a possibility. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to dismiss that. Uh, in this case, blackness would merely suggest a spiritual darkness or a distance from God, I still think that's a little bit problematic that we have this conflation right? of the two. We should and make I whiteness. Need to name that. We should make whiteness <laughs> equal something. Not like I said. I mean, you brought this up with Will Gaffney yeah. before, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also, we should not assume that Enoch was white or that Adam was white. Mm-hmm. Like the text, mm-hmm. even in the Moses text, doesn't say that, and there's just no way to to take them as white people, especially as Europeans. So correct, correct, correct. Um, that said, in the text itself, we don't have an explanation of what these terms mean 
And these terms emerged in the 19th century, which opens up a few questions. It doesn't help that these verses that are cross-referenced, like look at the word black and blackness in verses 8 and 22, they go back to 2 Nephi 26, a verse that we regularly use to insist that we as a people, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we're all about racial equality. Uh, unless, of course, those verses are also brought, borrowing these biblical definitions of black and white. And we also have to consider the fact that Joseph Smith translated these passages in a time where race was a well-established social construct. Mm -hmm. So there's that mm -hmm. element that is working on this too. And it also doesn't help that the brethren or anyone else hasn't really shed a whole lot of additional clarity on these verses and neither has the Come Follow Me manual. So basically we don't have a ton of tools to fully engage this text that would you know that would make any intelligent person in the 21st century clutch their pearls a little bit and uh, that's that's the problem like i i feel like we do ourselves a disservice by not really engaging these texts now mm -hmm. i'm not going to pretend mm -hmm. that i know the perfect way or the one way to read this but i have made peace with both of these uh renderings, both of these readings, the biblical rendering of blackness and whiteness, because that would take racializing out. And I can make peace with the reading of this as a racialized uh, text, where the racialized language, where, where race and spiritual darkness are conflated, because that would at least chart for 19th century America that mm -hmm. Joseph Smith mm -hmm. wrote this text in. That's still not okay, and that requires more of a direct and clarified response to the text as mm -hmm. we have it, uh, perhaps even edits of the text itself, but that response is going to take some time, and I don't think I have a perfect answer right now, and I'm going to need some time to refine what I've even said here. This might be better as a paper, uh, now that I think about it. Yeah, it, uh, it might It might be, and um, I fear to like offer my opinion as a white person on this, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> and okay. it's it's really something I've learned from people on the margins, though. Like if we look at how our Jewish siblings take the text, in many cases, um, the product of having to like interpret the text and make it all fit together is a product of an assumption that it, it's all going to fit together, right? And we don't have to have that assumption. Um, we don't have to have the assumption that the text gets everything right. It doesn't. It does. It's going to have. 19th century fingerprints on it. It's going to have Joseph's fingerprints on it. It's going to have all the biases of patriarchy of the ancient world or of the 19th century world on it. And that is something that we need to wrestle with. I think we culturally are afraid to argue with the text. We are afraid to argue even with God. And I think there is room for that. There's room with wrestling with God. Uh, and there's room with wrestling for the text. And I don't want to shortcut the process of wrestle by just saying, oh, it doesn't mean race or, oh, it doesn't mean this. or it, um, And I think there's uh, uh, there's something there to the wrestle and different people are going to wrestle with it differently. Um, but I am I'm reminded uh, we get the the flood of Noah um, later in this chapter mentioned. And th that bugs me because a lot of us are going to look at Noah as a hero. But if you actually look at the biblical text, Noah doesn't preach repentance to anyone. He doesn't give people a chance. He doesn't even say, hey, you need to repent or maybe there's room for you on the ark. And he also doesn't ever argue back with God, right? The way Abraham does bargaining over Sodom. Or he doesn't even do what mm -hmm. Jonah does and reluctantly goes preaching repentance. 
um, and he doesn't bargain with God like Moses did over the children of Israel after the, the golden calf incident. So here's something interesting. There's the, the Midrash Rabbah on Genesis from the, um, from the rabbinic Jewish world. And I'm going to quote this. It says, After the flood, Noah opened the ark and looked out. He saw the earth desolate, forests and gardens uprooted, corpses visible everywhere. There was no grass, no vegetation. The world was a wasteland. In pain and dismay, he cried out to God, Sovereign of all creation, in six days you made the earth and all that grows in it. It was like a garden, like a table prepared for a feast. Now you yourself have brought the work of your hands to naught, uprooting all that you planted, tearing down all that you built. Why did you not show compassion for your creatures? God then replied, O oh, faithless shepherd, now, after the destruction, you come to me and complain. But when I said to you, make an ark for yourself, for I'm going to flood the earth to destroy all flesh, you did not plead for your neighbors. How differently Abraham will act. He will pray on behalf of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Moses, when his people anger me with their calf of gold, will offer his life for them. But you, when you saw... That judgment was about to strike the world, you thought only of yourself and your household while all else perished by fire and water. Then Noah understood Ooh. that he had sinned, close quote. What's that from again? This is from the Midrash, Rabbah. Thank you. Noah is, is uh, the Hebrew word, and it means comfort, right? So here is Noah sitting there in comfort where everyone else is, is not, not. Um, and here's something really interesting. So the rabbinic community that produced this text is arguing with the text and arguing. Uh, and then in this uh, case is saying like, yeah, this le legitimizes arguing with God that maybe Noah should have pushed back and said, no Noah should have said to God, well, you know what? I'm not going to build this ark because either we're all going to die or we're all going to live. You got to fix this and you've got to um, give people a chance. And so now what's interesting is Genesis does not say that Mo, that Noah uh, told people to repent. That's not in the narrative, but it is in the Moses chapter uh, eight narrative uh, where, where, where Noah, did I say Moses? I meant Noah. Uh, Noah is, uh, um, it's in Moses chapter 8, but Noah is portrayed as preaching um, uh, repentance to the people of the time. And there's some interesting things about that, because if you look at one of the important redactional tendencies, and redactional is a smarty pants word for like, what is the biases of the editor? What are their priorities? If you look at the these tendencies in the Joseph Smith translation, Joseph is always trying to fix the text. If there's something uncomfortable in the text, he, he just rushes in and fixes it so we don't have to wrestle with it. And I think that tendency serves a certain purpose because then you get this pure text that you can just, you know, uh, don't have Alfred's problem, right? Alfred's problem of, of, of having problems in the text that, that will, uh, mm -hmm. will lead people astray. Mm -hmm. But it would deprive us of the wrestle. And in fact, even the book of um, one of the sort of uncomfortable things in the Genesis 5 narrative is this tantalizing mention of Enoch, which just cries out for someone to come along and fill it in. Yes. 
Yes. And people have did this. That's where we get first Enoch. This is where we get second Enoch. This is where we get third Enoch. And this is also where we get the Enoch material in the Latter-day Saint world. And so the fact mm-hmm. that all this stuff is happening proves that people found that uh, text uh, crying out for some type of, of uh, resolution. And what I'm here to say is, well, maybe we just need to sit with the fact that it's unresolved and, um, and, and wrestle with the text and maybe even wrestle with God. Like, how could God allow a prophet to get something wrong? How could God allow a prophet to put something racist in the text? Well, <laughs> it's happened before well, and it's yeah. going to happen again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I just don't want to short circuit some of this wrestling. Uh, so I have more, like, I have more questions and answers for this. Again, I think that's okay. And I kind of think that's the point. Like, this is something I'm quickly learning while I'm in school is just, I, I just went through a two and a half week intensive course on Paul and I was excited and I was excited all throughout the course itself. Mm-hmm. But I have more questions than answers at this point. And it's simultaneously frustrating and exciting because I am learning to ask better questions and I have been presented mm-hmm. with new things to consider. I think that is one of the best parts of studying the scriptures, of doing the work that we do, is coming across new and better questions that help us engage the text in a new way and in ways that can help, you know, just enrich just enrich us and enrich those around us. These are important questions and they will help us, you know, not just engage mm-hmm. the text, but mm-hmm. also, you know, ask the big important question that you like to ask, Derek. I even use this in my final paper for the Paul class on Paul. How does this function? Right. You know, it's a, it's a great question. One that I am definitely taking with me more and more, but uh, mm-hmm. that is always the question I'm coming back to in the midst of these discussions that, uh, you know, that you're starting, that you have had today in the course of our conversation. And this gets back to a Protestant uh, principle for interpreting the scriptures. And uh, that I, and I'm sure others have done it too, but I've learned it in the Protestant context is if you believe that the scriptures are the word of God and are infallible and inerrant, which we don't have to, but they, uh, many of them do. The question is, what do you do when you've got apparent contradictions in the text. And they're going to see them as apparent contradictions because they don't think there's any real contradictions. But the safest and wisest thing, uh, according to to them, is to take the obscure... You've got two choices. You can take these obscure and difficult passages and use them to overturn what is clearly said elsewhere, or you can use what is clearly said elsewhere to overturn what's said obscurely and confusedly elsewhere. And I think that is where we go back to it. What do you know? What do you know about Christ? What do you know about God's character? What do we know about the way Jesus... To me, one of the clearest things is how did Jesus live his life on earth, right? That tells you Mm -hmm. a lot of answers about how things go. So... We've got a, a, a choice between these texts around blackness, whether it's here in the Book of Moses or in the Book of Mormon. We've got those texts, and then we've got these clear uh, texts elsewhere that I think are the clearest of the clear, that all are alike unto God, that it, there's neither Jew nor Greek, mm-hmm. that all are, uh, mm-hmm. that um, God is no respecter of persons. To me, that's clear. Like, that is not right. hard to understand. 
like trying to figure out what's going on here with blackness and does that refer to black skin or black uh, or not or or what is that to me when it comes down to it where do i put my foundation i'm just going to i'm going to throw my allegiance in with the clear passage and not allow this other stuff to mess up what i know from the clear passages and that doesn't mean we still can't wrestle. I, yeah, we can wrestle. I don't want to just paper over the, 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 the challenge, but that holds the challenge with some sense of balance. That's a great point. And the challenge is no longer on my blackness, but on the text itself mm -hmm. when we look at it in mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. Like this isn't about, oh, this text says there's something wrong with my skin. Actually, the text says there's something actually, you know, Jesus and the rest of this text says there's something wrong with the text that is written here. Mm -hmm. And that gives us space mm -hmm. to ask the question, what is it? What is wrong with it? What is it talking about if, it, if it's not talking about, you know, the blackness of my skin? Because it can't be about that. That would be a problem. That would be a contradiction of what is in the rest of the text. So we can ask a better question, mm -hmm. not so much ask, you know, what is this text saying about my skin? Because uh, in that light, that is not actually the right question. And uh, thanks to what you have just named, we now have a better question to ask. Right. And, uh, and I think, yeah. to me, I can look at Moses 7 verse 18 as an anti-racist text. And it says... That was the other point I wanted to make was just there are contradictions within mm -hmm. Moses chapter 7 mm -hmm. itself. Sorry, go ahead. Right. And here's what it says. And the Lord called his people Zion because they were of one heart and one mind, and dwelt in righteousness, and there was no poor among them, right? And then when you look at the wickedness of, of the people, it's that they hated their own blood, right? They hated their relatives. That is the wickedness that made God weep. Isn't that profound? I think racism makes mm -hmm. God weep. Race, God isn't the source of racism, uh, God might be some people's excuse for racism if they misrepresent God and create God in their own image by denying the image of God in other people. But the fact that that people lacked affection for one another and violated the covenant, the commandment to love your neighbors yourself, which to me should solve the racism question. Is racism okay? Like, who's my neighbor? And then getting back to they hated their own blood because um, of one of one uh, one blood, God created all all of humanity, and I think there's there's ways, strategic ways of looking at the text that will um, will allow us to to use the text to challenge the text, or to use the text mm -hmm. to challenge ways that people are trying to appropriate and make the text function in a way that ethically we should not let it function. I love that. That is a much smarter way to say what I was trying to say just now. So thank you for putting oh, that no. out there. Oh, I, no. I, I should let you say what you were going to say. No, 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 no. It's great. Like, I actually love that. I, I And I love that little smooth transition into, you know, what it is to be a Zion community. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there was just one more thing, if I may, Derek, before we mm -hmm. further talk about the Zion community. The, the uh, only other thing I wanted to say about this is the significance of of the text as an impediment to people embracing uh, mm -hmm. any part of the restored gospel. Texts like this one, texts like 2 Nephi 5, mm -hmm. and you know, 
other texts, these these are difficult reads for black folks. And, you know, I'm just sticking with black folks for now, but there's texts that are difficult for people who are queer, that are difficult right. for people, well, difficult for women. And, you know, folks on, you know, other folks on the margins. There's a lot of texts that make this difficult. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is definitely a big one for uh, black folks. But the only thing I wanted to say about this is um, we, we don't need any religion that communicates things like this to us. And it's difficult to hear the message of the restored gospel of Christ over these problematic texts. It's difficult to hear the message of the restored gospel mm-hmm. over the sound of problematic behavior in general, like our institutionalized queer phobia, like our reticence in the face mm-hmm. of high profile racial incidents. And it's difficult to hear the message of the restored gospel over the sound of your stomach growling, among other things like people be having personally perfectly mm-hmm. reasonable needs and and expectations that will put them in a position to receive the restored gospel. You could you could even argue that fulfilling these needs or answering this these needs is part of it. Like if we don't feed the mm-hmm. hungry, if we don't clothe the naked, if we don't tend to the sick, welcome the stranger, and otherwise help the marginalized in need, then as uh, Matthew twenty five forty one tells us, the Lord will tell us to depart from depart from me, ye cursed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's a consequence. This is very much a part of embracing the gospel is making sure people on the margins mm-hmm. have a means to engage it in the first place, making sure they're looked after. And I think when we I think that's one of the reasons Jesus fed people or healed people in some cases, because then they were in a position to be taught and no one wants to hear your message when you're telling them that they're less than or when you're not feet or when you're no their their stomachs are growling or when, you know, the message is inaccessible some other way. Mm-hmm. So all that to say that this casual omission of a discussion on these verses that that has consequences and uh you know we got to address that and rant. Yeah, and I think this gets back to um something I've learned from the uh black interpretive communities is that black folks have never been a- able to read the bible uh uncritically or or without little asterisks and footnotes because you have to wrestle with well what does the new testament say about enslavement what does the hebrew bible say about enslavement and so you can't um i think i've heard it said that black folks have never had the the luxury of just taking the bible at face value completely on these things and i think that is something to take into account here as well that we don't have to take the book of Moses at face value. In fact, Alfred says, you're not supposed to take everything at face value, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, uh, and in the end, I should say, I don't agree with Alfred. I think instead of um, just keeping the text from people, we should empower the people better so that when they get the text, they have the tools to not take it irresponsibly and not follow the bad examples in the, in the text. Uh, just because right. something's in the text doesn't mean that that's the right thing to do. And just because something is taught in the text does not mean that it's the final truth on anything. And um, mm-hmm. that's why I'm grateful that we lived that we live in the era of um, uh, ongoing revelation, where we can um, have both a prophetic and personal revelation that will overcome some of these limitations of the text. That's that jump out at us so so obviously. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. 
Well, I'm probably is about there... done. I could ramble on for another few hours, but <laughs> but we should. I should probably stop. It's all good. It's all good. And uh, I've had some. I had some relatively half baked thoughts on, uh, you know, the Zion community. I, I was really intrigued, mm-hmm. by, but I know there's a lot of people that are going to discuss this anyway. Come, uh, you know, come this Sunday. So I think I'm going to leave that alone for now, since we're already at an hour, and we've perhaps said mm-hmm. enough about that. So let me go ahead and. Well, 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 I have one last thing to say. Oh yeah, go ahead. Go ahead about who gets to define the Zion community, right? Because you can't separate this question from the question of power dynamics. And I think part of what made Zion Zion is that there were no poor people, that everyone was empowered. And if you have straight white men defining what Zion is, you're going to get a really distorted view of Zion. You're not going to get Zion is my point. And so mm-hmm. we have to bring all these voices to the table, women, uh, queer and trans folks, people of color, people who have been historically dispossessed, uh, poor people, disabled folks, right? We, we're not Zion unless we all get there, which is what I really think is the mistake of Noah. He's like, well, yeah, I can be saved without the rest of humanity. Like the Latter-day Saint view is, no, you cannot be saved apart from other people. Um, And you cannot be Zion if people are left out. And you cannot build Zion if only a small fraction of people take their image of Zion and use it uh, through unrighteous dominion to deny the humanity and dignity and divinity of other people, right? You cannot separate the question of Zion from the question of power when you ask, well, what does Zion look like? Right now... We've got leaders of the church talking about what Zion looks like, and it looks like no queer people, right? No queer people in Mm -hmm. the church now, no queer people in the eternities. That's what they think Zion looks like because they have the power to enforce that view and teach that view and squelch dissent. And um, that's not Zion. That just can't be Zion when you look at Um, the way Jesus humbled himself for the sake of those who did not have power, Uh, how he gave up privilege, how he um, embodied uh, a Zion living. So that's probably something, that's probably where I'm going to leave things. So we better not talk anymore else I'll have other ideas. (laughs) Sounds good, my friend. Okay. Well, before we go ahead and uh, wrap things up, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, has a new podcast partner we want to put you on to called The Fireside Podcast with Blair Hodges. It features in-depth interviews about religion and culture featuring brilliant writers, scholars, activists, and more. Uh, I actually hear it uh, here at school. I just uh, got the chance to listen to one of them in dialogue with one of our deans. Uh, his name is Dante Stewart. He's got a new book coming out. And uh, he's going to be on Fireside in the next season. So I'm really excited for that. He's one of the most influential uh, theologians, well, social media theologians, I guess, right now. I forget mm-hmm. what the ranking system was. But uh, that's the uh, that's the caliber of guests they'd be having on there. Those are the kinds of conversations they'd be doing. So if you are spiritual but not religious or religious but not spiritual or something else entirely, there's a seat saved for you at Fireside. Uh, you can learn more and listen to Fireside by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or at uh, dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. 
That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek, where can people find us? So you can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, also on um, Twitter and Instagram at BTBLDS. You can search for us on Facebook. And there's one other really important thing that I need to tell everyone about and we talked about last week. Okay. But Brother Jones has this really amazing course. <laughs> and when we talked about it last week, I had not gone through it because it was not available yet. But I went through it this per, this past Monday, and it is amazing. So uh, can you tell people where to find that? Yes, sir. Um, the, the, so the we'll put a link to the course in the show notes. It's also going to be on the website from the drop-down menu. It's also available in the bio from our Instagram. You just mm-hmm. click the link in our bio, and it should be the first hit is a uh, link to the course. So that is where you can find the course. And also a note on that, I figured out how to add slide scale pricing to it. So mm-hmm. I think I kind of broke it a little bit, though. <laughs> so um, for whatever reason, the original price is a lot lower than what it was before. But the slide scale is still in process. So you ch- you can choose from three prices that are available. Mm-hmm. Just pay whatever you can and you can get access to the content. But it is it mm-hmm. is available now. Mm-hmm. It's all on the honor system. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's great. That's how that, that's how you can find uh, the course. Mm-hmm. OK, well, that sounds great. Um, and thank you for the endorsement, Derek. I do appreciate it. Yeah, it is a really good course. Like I um yeah, it, everyone sh- everyone should be should should do this and uh, talk about it with with fellow people. I hope people from a wide spectrum uh, of experience on anti racism work uh, watch the course. Not just the people that are already invested, but people that right. might be new to this. In fact, I actually thought, for at least from my perspective, this is a very safe course for for uh, people that are new to it. Right. That's that's who I designed it for, honestly. And uh, that's what Deseret Book wanted when they originally approached me about this course. Mm-hmm. Like the people I wrote this course for were the people who sent me text messages after George Floyd happened. Like the 20 or so people that were like texting me that day, mm-hmm. asking me what they can do and all that stuff. Those are the people I made this course for. So it's a very good entry point. Like I called it... LDS anti-racism 101 mm-hmm. for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's a very good mm-hmm. entry point for yeah. pretty much anybody. Yeah. So. Oh, and also there's people out there and um, I had somebody reach out to me from Harriman, Utah and like wants to like use it in uh, in their ward, which I thought was really cool. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I am definitely a huge proponent of anyone who wants to use the course in uh, you know their leadership, in their ward councils, whatever else. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are looking for some kind of uh, group deal or something like that, like I'm definitely w- more than willing to do something for those of you who are in ward leadership of, or stake leadership of any capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I definitely think it's a good tool for that, and I am more than happy to uh, work with y'all. So, by all means, reach out to me, or you know, reach out to the podcast Instagram, slide into our DMs, and uh, we'll see what we can do for you. Yeah. So again, um, check out this course. It's it's worth it, and it's also worth going through several times. I think. So yeah, it's it's, it's evergreen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's that's it then. I think. Yeah. Just a couple of. Uh, uh, thank yous. Just want to say special thanks to David Doyle for editing the transcripts, uh, Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for being a big help with the social media, and uh, of course the team doing incredible work of assembling the 
episode outlines. Stephanie Peterson, Gabrielle Honda, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and uh, Beth Johnson. These outlines also got the uh, Faithful Feminist episodes and the Holy Human episodes, too, from the same week. So you got your little uh, one-stop shop for your Come Follow Me outlines and your uh, study helps. So the link to the outlines, that will also be in the show notes, as well as the uh, drop-down menu on our website, or you can access it by tinyurl.com slash btboutlines. Uh, you can also find the transcripts on uh, in the show notes and in the drop-down menu. Mm-hmm. And I think... That is everything. Did I miss anything, Derek? Nope, I don't think so. Very good. No announcements or nothing like that. So thank you all for joining us. Till we meet again next week. Yeah, till we meet again next week. Bye, everyone.